Welcome to The Thing About Austin, a podcast about Jane Austen's world. I'm Zan. And I'm Diane. And this episode, we're talking about Mrs. Croft at Sea. We are so excited to welcome our guest, Maria Petrillo. Maria is the Director of Interpretation at Mystic Seaport Museum in Connecticut, where she oversees the museum's public-facing historical interpretation and the preservation and demonstration of historic trades and shipboard skills. She also researched and portrays a 19th century whaling captain's wife, Mrs. Captain Georgiana Allen, who sailed on board her husband's whaling ships in 1869 and 1871. Prior to becoming Director of Interpretation, Maria worked as Assistant Foreman on the Mystic Seaport Waterfront Demonstration Team and has demonstrated sailor skills, blacksmithing, coopering, and open hearth cooking for the public. She has a master's degree in Naval and Maritime History from the University of Exeter. In her spare time, she enjoys historical costuming, reading, and travel. Maria lives in southeastern Connecticut with her husband and their two dogs. Welcome, Maria. We're so glad to have you. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Well, your skill set is perfect for what we're talking about today. We are basing our discussion in persuasion today. Anne is staying with her sister, Mary, and is thrown into company with Captain Wentworth at a dinner party held by the Musgroves at their estate, Uppercross. Included in the party is Wentworth's sister, Mrs. Croft, and her husband, Admiral Croft. After the dinner, the conversation turns to women on board Navy ships. Wentworth initially claims that he would never willingly admit any ladies on board a ship of his. And his sister thinks this is ridiculous and really takes him to task, especially since she has spent a great deal of time on ships with her husband. So this is part of her defense. Oh, Frederick, I cannot believe it of you. All idle refinement? Women may be as comfortable on board as in the best house in England. I believe I have lived as much on board as most women, and I know nothing superior to the accommodations of a man of war. I declare I have not a comfort or an indulgence about me, even at Kellynch Hall, with a kind bow to Anne, beyond what I always had in most of the ships I have lived in, and they have been five altogether. So she's pretty blunt about uh, Wentworth being incorrect here. <laughs> I mean, to me, it's not, she sounds a little bit too much like those people who are like, oh, backpacking is just as comfortable as sleeping at home. Yeah, I have to say, I think she's exaggerating a little bit when she's talking about how it, it's not any more comfortable than an estate house. She's like, Kellen Hall, man of war, pretty much <laughs> Basically the, same, the same At the same time, she's really just not going to let him let that slide that he's like, yeah. women on board, not even. So, Maria... Wentworth's position about not allowing women on board his ships, which is what sparks this conversation, is, strictly speaking, actual Navy regulations at this time. So Mrs. Croft, you know, breaking some rules. <laughs> According to the 1808 Regulations and Instructions Relating to His Majesty's Service at Sea, he, the captain, is not to allow of any woman being carried to sea in the ship. But that is clearly not a rule that was upheld since many women, including Mrs. Croft, went to sea with the British Navy. So can you talk a bit more about the kinds of rules and policies that were in place surrounding women on ships during this era? 
Absolutely. So as you say, women are strictly not allowed on board, um, the exception being occasionally for travel, official travel. So I think the regulations go on to say that with the exception of orders from the admiralty or a superior officer, and that usually refers to traveling diplomats or their families, sometimes prominent families that have been evacuated from cities where an enemy army has invaded or taken over. So they are allowed to travel. It seems like it was fairly common for women to visit on board ships, but they are not supposed to live on board. But that regulation really varies from ship to ship and fleet to fleet. So it just depends on what the admiral or what the particular captain happens to think. It certainly sounds like Captain Wentworth, not going to be super lenient about that, <laughs> but Admiral Croft is probably going to let it slide. So yeah, so you see women going to sea, not infrequently, but they are often hard to find because they're not in any official record because they're not officially supposed to be there. Right. So they crop up in weird places. So sometimes you see them in letters. Sometimes we have their letters talking about their time at sea. So that's really great. Other times they show up in court records. So there are you know, certain court martial cases and admiralty court records that uh, reference women being on board. And they do occasionally show up in the ship's muster. Sometimes there are occasions after a battle, if women are widowed, they are put officially in as like a nurse or other, you know, caretaker role so that they can draw down on ship's pay. And can you clarify what the ship's muster is? Yeah. So the ship's muster is like the official record of who's on board. And that theoretically encompasses all of the sailors that are put into the ship's muster or the ship's books, what their rating is and how they're paid. And is that separate or different from something like a passenger manifest? That would be separate. And naval ships do carry passengers, but it's not that's not their main job. And usually if they're carrying any large number of people, they're troop transports. And so it's a military function. So in the case of somebody like a Mrs. Croft, if she is accompanying the admiral on board, would there be an official record of her on ship? So it doesn't, it, from most records, it doesn't seem like it was secret. Like it, it, it seems a lot like it was sort of an open secret. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. people, you didn't talk about it in the official record, but everybody knew that women were on board ship. And so Mrs. Croft would probably have been pretty openly on board, but she wouldn't have been in any of the official documents for the vessel. For example, she wouldn't be allocated any of the ship's rations. If she were a woman of the lower decks, she would probably share whatever her husband was allotted. As a captain's wife or an admiral's wife, I'm sure she would have the money to purchase her own provisions. She could have set up an arrangement with the purser to purchase extra supplies, or she might simply purchase her own separate food and drink. Like bring them on board with her, that sort of exactly. thing? Exactly. Exactly. If you are not one of the, the captain or the admiral, that would be alone a deterrent to bringing maybe your wife along with you if you have to cut your own rations in half? Yeah. It sounds like, you know, most of the accounts indicate that they share rations among a mess. So that is like a certain number of men who share their mess, their food. And the rations are pretty generous. So, you know, sharing them is not a huge hardship, but they also were able to purchase their own food with their own money. So when they're in port, they are allowed to buy fresh meat, vegetables, et cetera, whatever they so choose. But I think the, the deterrent for women, especially women on the lower decks, is the lack of privacy. So officers have cabins, but men who are serving in the ship, they sleep in hammocks in open spaces down below on the lower decks. And so if you were a woman 
going to see with your husband or your partner of the lower rank, you didn't have a cabin. You were just sharing that space. Yeah. Um, especially because Mrs. Croft speaks quite fondly of being on ship. And of course, she's not she's not below deck, but she's she is an admiral's wife. Yes. She's going to sea as like the in the most privileged position that a woman can yeah. be at sea. Yeah. In. Well, and Austin's narrator tells us that she has been almost as much at sea as her husband. So she's she's definitely traveled a lot with him. What kinds of roles and responsibilities might women take on board a ship during this period? Yeah. So it's interesting because admiral's wives and captain's wives probably would not have been assigned any official duties. And Mrs. Croft is a very active and she comes across as a very practical sort of down to earth woman. She probably would have been mostly occupied with maintaining their household, as it were, on board ship. It is heavily implied that she manages their finances throughout the book. So I imagine she probably would have done that when they were at sea as well. She would have kept up correspondence with people back home. But she would have also been incredibly isolated. It wouldn't have been likely that there were any other women of genteel rank on board the ship. So she's really cutting herself off from any other sort of female companionship besides the assistance, probably, of some of the warrant or petty officer's wives in household duties and chores. She might have had a servant or a maid with her. Uh, there are accounts of women who go to sea with a maid, but some of them don't. Uh, and you can imagine probably not, not too many maids want to go to sea. Sure. I'm going to need triple pay for that. Thank you very much. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It's not, you know, what you sign up for necessarily when you take that job. But women of the lower ranks of the warrant and petty officers and women of the lower decks would would have had some duties. Mostly it would have been during and immediately after battle. So women, particularly women of the lower decks would have run powder during an engagement. So on a ship of war, the powder magazine, understandably, is like deep down in the hold, and it's try they try to keep it away from anything that might cause an explosion. And so to keep that risk low, they don't bring all the powder up to the guns when they're engaging in a battle. So they would actually send young boys, they're called powder monkeys, down into the hold. They would get a cartridge of powder, run up to their gun, drop it off, and then run back down, get another cartridge of powder, okay. run up to the gun. And they do this throughout the battle, and that could... It could last hours. Battles sometimes go on for multiple five, six, seven hours at a time. So it's really strenuous work. And there are a number of accounts of women doing that job just alongside the men. So they would be carrying the powder. They might also be bringing you know, water or drinks or some kind of relief to the men during that time. After or during battle, they might also be assigned to help the surgeon. That would be slightly less risky in the sense that the surgeon's quarters are below the waterline. So you're not going to be exposed to, you know, shrapnel and shot and can of fire like you would be if you were on the upper decks. But it's also incredibly cramped and confined. And as you can imagine, bloody and messy and pretty horrific in and of itself. So there would be women there as well. In the in-between time, when you're not engaging in combat, uh, a lot of women would do washing, mending other kinds of domestic chores. If sailors had a little bit of spare cash to pay for that, they probably would. And the women would use that as their sort of income while they were on board ship. So these women, especially the women on the lower deck, were they all, for the most part, like attached in some way to a man on board, like to another sailor? Or were women ever just hired for a position? I mean, it sounds not according to the regulations that we read at the mm -hmm. top of the episode. But, you know, I'm just curious if if there were any cases that we know of of sort of women just 
I'm here as a nurse or whatever the case might be. Yeah. So on hospital ships, you do see that. But on active duty vessels that are cruising, not really. They're not hiring women specifically for any kind of job. Women do go to sea officially alongside their husbands um, when they're on a troop transport ship because the British army does allow a certain number of the men to have their spouses with them. And so women would have traveled with the army. And of course, to travel to the Peninsula War, to the North American station, you did have to get on a ship. Mm -hmm, So they would travel officially in that capacity. When you were talking about, you know, what what women would have been doing during during combat in terms of on the on the lower deck, what would someone like Mrs. Croft do during an engagement? You know, because I'm assuming she's you know, her cabin is probably above deck. Yes. And the captain's cabin and the admiral's cabin are fitted out with these movable bulkheads. And so the cabin's big enough that it can be split into like a great room or it's it looks like a dining parlor to us today, uh, a day cabin, a private bedroom probably a pantry as well, and maybe a few other rooms. But during combat, they would clear all of that out because there are actually guns that go out the stern windows of the captain's cabin. So that would be an active zone as well. It's like the Murphy bed of guns. (laughs) (laughs) Just clear everything out of the way and put the cannons in place, put the guns in place. So I think it would be pretty likely that if they expected to have an engagement Mrs. Croft would have left the ship before. She doesn't say that explicitly. It's not really detailed in a lot of historic records, but it seems likely that if they were expecting to go in pursuit of an enemy fleet, an admiral or captain's wife would not have been brought along for that particular cruise. If she did happen to be on board, she probably would have gone to the lower decks, the Orlop deck, which is again below the waterline. So she's less likely to be in the direct line of fire. Okay. Now, Mrs. Croft being like an intrepid woman, maybe she would have gotten her hands dirty and like helped out some way. Mm-hmm. I could see her prepping some bandages for the surgeon, yeah, you know, sure. that sort of thing. Sure. <laughs> Helping out a little bit, comforting people who are who have already been tended to in some way. But it sounds like if they had any kind of advanced warning, it would be customary to be like, and we're just going to like let you out at shore here and we'll we'll come pick you up a little bit later. Exactly. And then actually, there's a question I was having earlier when you were talking about you know, how isolating that would be. How often are they like dropping anchor at port? So yeah, it depends a lot on what kind of service the ship is doing. So if you are on blockade duty, you are going into port very infrequently because the whole point of the blockade is that you're always there. And so if your ships are leaving to resupply constantly or you're going back to port, the point of your blockade is, is pretty much it's the game is over at that point. So blockade duty did require a long amount of time on station. They were stopping in foreign ports, not infrequently, but it was unlikely that they were going home regularly. Like there are some captains who talk about how they've been at sea for 18 years and are home for no more than, you know, one or two of those years altogether. There's a captain in 1803 who talks about he's at 10 years at sea and he hasn't seen his daughter for six years. So While they're stopping in foreign ports and foreign stations pretty frequently, they're not going home with any sort of regularity. So it probably was that Mrs. Croft would be in foreign ports pretty regularly wherever her husband was on station, but she wasn't going back to England very often. There would certainly be some camaraderie between fellow captains and their families, even if the families weren't actively traveling on board the ship, they might be living in a foreign port where their um, husband is stationed. 
And so there is this sense from letters and the sort of community that forms around the Navy, which I actually think Austin portrays really beautifully in Persuasion, that there is a support network. It's just not the one that you would think of if you were living back at home mm-hmm. you right. know, in England in a more traditional setting. Yeah. And I'm wondering, too, you know, we've talked about these wives traveling with their husbands. But I mean, do we have accounts of the captain, his wife and like his kids all being on board ship? There aren't too many details, but you certainly get mentions of captains who are traveling with their wife and children. You know, conception can happen anywhere. And so can childbirth. (laughs) And so it is not uncommon for women to be pregnant while they're at sea. There are some accounts of women giving birth in the middle of battle. But yeah, so there are children on board. They send surprisingly young boys to sea as well. Like for our time period, it's it's quite shocking. You're like, you're sending your six-year-old into the Navy. That's pretty young, but 10 was not uncommon. And um, actually, Jane Austen's brother, Charles, and his wife, Fanny, had their three young daughters on board, although they were not stationed at sea, so to speak. They were anchored in the Nor on what was called a guard and a receiving ship. So as part of the coastal guard defenses, as well as a receiving ship, which is where the basically the new recruits would be housed until they were assigned to a, an active vessel. And so she was living on board that ship for several years with her three small children. So it definitely sounds like it was doable, like you said, and we, we do have you know several examples of this being the case. But According to Mrs. Croft, it's not only just doable, this is like a way to live. So she tells us that the living situation on a ship is actually really great, saying, I know nothing superior to the accommodations of a man of war, which again, I find slightly suspect, but you know. (laughs) Yeah. So first, can you tell us what she's referring to when she says man of war, both in terms of what the ship is and in terms of what that means for the cabin size and you know, what her accommodations on board might have looked like. Yeah. So uh, Mrs. Croft is using a, a generic term for sort of a large naval warship when she says man of war. It is kind of a generic term, um, not referring to a specific size vessel. But she does also say she, I think she quotes, I am referring, of course, to the higher rates. When you come to a frigate, you are more confined. So there she's expressing a little bit more nuanced understanding of how these ships are rated and what each rate might entail. So first rate and second rate ships have three decks and a first rate ship would carry between 100 and 120 guns and have a crew of about 800 to 850 men if that was a full complement. So if you ever get a chance to see HMS Victory, which is preserved in Portsmouth Historic Dockyard, that is an excellent example of a first rate ship with an admiral's cabin. So you can actually see what Mrs. Croft's living quarters probably would have looked like if she was sailing with her husband when he was an admiral. Second rates are slightly smaller. They carry 80 to 98 guns. And then third and fourth rates have two decks. And the number of guns kind of goes down from there. But those vessels are also what we call line of battle ships. Those are considered ships that are large enough to stand in the line of battle. And the line of battle is pretty standard tactic at the end of the 18th and into the 19th century. Nelson sort of famously often eschews the line of battle tactic and and breaks the line. But um, those vessels would have been set up to essentially sail next to each other, lining up, as the name implies, and simply firing broadsides at the other vessel, the enemy vessel. Smaller vessels like the frigate that she mentions are designed more for independent cruising. They're not considered line of battleships. 
and they would be significantly smaller. And the living quarters, as she also says, would be significantly smaller than a three deck ship that has 850 men living sure, on board. Right. Yeah. So that's, that's sort of what she's, she's talking about there. And she's probably been living in first or second rate ships, I'm guessing, based on her husband's career. Perhaps she lived in a frigate earlier on when he was a captain. Right. But that's like, you know, that rosy tinted haze of exactly. you know, 20 years ago. Like their snug parlor where the wind comes down the chimney. Nobody actually <laughs> yeah. likes that. It's just a fond memory. Right. The honeymoon years, as it were. Exactly. Because that's one of the first types of ships that Captain Wentworth gets is a frigate, right? The, the Laconia. Yes. And it's also really notable because he makes a lot of money. Like Captain Wentworth is wealthy when he comes back on shore. Right. And frigates were sort of the ideal assignment for a young officer because it was the best way to make money, gotcha. prize money specifically. But not necessarily the best one for having a wife on board. It right. sounds Probably like. not. Right. Right. <laughs> no. She's like, well, we've been living on this gigantic first rate ship. I've got a nice parlor, you know. My own suite of rooms. Yeah, I got my own suite of rooms. I've got Murphy bed cannons. Like... <laughs> What it's more great. could you need? <laughs> Everything a lady needs, honestly. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so HMS Victory is about 186 feet in length or 227 feet overall. So the 186 refers to the length of the gun decks. The overall is the length overall, as the name implies. Uh, it has a beam of 51 feet. So that's the width at the widest point, And it draws just over 28 feet. So that's the draft of the vessel going down into the water. So it's it's a pretty it's a big ship. Yeah. I've been lucky enough to visit and walk through it. And even as somebody who kind of knew what to expect, it's shocking how much space there is in a vessel like that. Yeah. So were you able to go into the Admiral's quarters? Yes. So like, what would you compare it to Like, if you're apartment hunting in the city? It's way nicer than any apartment I've ever lived in. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Much nicer. <laughs> it's big. Um, you know, I mean, the, the stern of the, the vessel is probably... I mean, the cabin was probably like 40 feet across, and then it runs forward about to the mizzen mast. So that's like a good almost third of the ship. That's, you know, and it's only one deck, but it's still, it's a lot of living space. And while it's certainly not going to compare to a country house um, in terms of accommodation (laughs) and space and amenities, it is not small. And you would have had, compared to the other people living on board, a huge proportion of the ship. Yeah. Well, and, the, and these aren't also just like slapped together kind of estate rooms. They're these are like no. luxury, right? They've got the the all of the tapestries and all of the textures and gorgeousness that you'd expect. Yes. They're beautiful. Fancy wood paneling, all of that. Absolutely. Paneling, they have these beautiful floors, there's carpets, they would have had nice furniture, china, everything you would have had to set a nice table at home. So not quite Kellynch, but like there is some luxury here. <laughs> for sure, it's a sort of situation where, like, she is an admiral's wife. Very different mm-hmm. situation for, you know, a woman or a man who's on the lower deck. Yes. And the, you know, the warrant officers and their wives would have had slightly more privacy. They would have had small, probably canvas or light wood bulkhead cabins that would have given them, you know, a little bit of their own space, but certainly not a large amount of space. A practical question, like if they're traveling when it's cold out, can you light a fire on board ship? I mean, that seems, you know, you're on a ship made of wood. That seems kind of dodgy, but like, <laughs> yeah. And there's powder everywhere. Yeah, you can. They didn't have, you know, stoves in every section of the vessel, but there would have been a large galley stove 
on one of the gun decks, which is where they would have cooked all their meals. So there was a source of heat there. I don't think it would be out of the realm of possibility to expect that the captain would have had a small stove of some kind in the aft cabin. Yeah, so they would have been able to light the galley stove, which would have been a source of heat, and they also would have cooked hot food for the men, but they wouldn't have had a lot of heating on board. So really, if you're Mrs. Croft, you're dressing in layers. Yes, you're dressing in layers. Dress practically. Well, I think I think one of my favorite things about Mrs. Croft's defense here when it comes to women on board ships is that she also has this beautiful phrase that I think, I, you know, again, it's one of those things that's splashed on totes and coffee cups where she says, I hate to hear you talking so like a fine gentleman and as if women were all fine ladies instead of rational creatures. And then here's the big quote right here. We none of us expect to be in smooth water all our days. And it's just such a poignant defense here. Why do you think Austin dedicates this much time and detail and craft into these scenes with Mrs. Croft and this kind of final appeal to not wanting to be in calm water? It's a great question. I mean, I love that quote too. It feels like one of the most like overtly sort of feminist statements in Austin's books. And I've always thought that she is, I mean, Austin is well versed in the Navy. She has two brothers who have gone to see Frank and Charles and she knows both of their wives. So she lives with Mary Austin, who is married to her brother, Frank, for three years in Southampton. And she would have known Fanny as well, but she would have known both of these women. And I think she would have seen a lot firsthand of what that life was like. And, you know, she, people always say Austin writes what she knows. And I, I always kind of think that this is something she knows. She knows what her brother's lives entail to some extent. She knows both of their wives, um, one of them quite well, and is sort of sharing that, you know, the bravery of women and that the reality that they live through and showing that, you know, they're equal to it, right? So the British Navy is really central to British national identity, particularly at this time. She's writing this after Nelson has died, you know, a national hero. And by showing Mrs. Croft as being, you know, a real part of this organization and being equal to all these things that men are equal to. I think she's she's sort of showing that women are an intrinsic part of this this character of the Navy that she, um, in this book particularly, is so profusive in her praise about. And I love that you mentioned that, that this is kind of perhaps even a small homage to her to her sisters-in-law, that this is this is also a very specific statement to honor these women that she personally knows, which I think is kind of beautiful. Yeah, it's something that I think we kind of underestimate how intimately involved and knowledgeable Austin would have been about these naval lives that are taking place across the sea. But of course, she's she's getting regular correspondence from people she loves and cares about very much who are serving on these ships. Yeah. Well, Maria, thank you so much for joining us. We learned so many things. This was a fabulous conversation. Absolutely. Where can our listeners find you online, learn more about your work, that sort of thing. Yeah. So I am on Instagram. It's just me. It's Maria Ann 18, the most boring Instagram name I think I've ever <laughs> come across. Um, so you can find me there. It's mostly pictures of work and historical costuming and sometimes my dogs. All things that we love. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I mean, I think they're great. <laughs> and you know, if you ever get a chance to visit Mystic Seaport Museum or attend one of the online lectures that's put on by the museum, 
we do focus a lot on maritime history, but there's so much rich content about women who go to sea in the 19th century and all these stories about people's lives and how they're interconnected in this maritime way. So highly recommend checking it out if you ever get a chance. And the website for the museum is mysticseaport.org? Yeah, it's uh, mysticseaport.org. And Mystic Seaport is also on Instagram if you want to follow them there at uh, Mystic Seaport Museum. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you. It has been an absolute delight. Oh, thank you. Thank you again to Maria Petrillo for joining us for this discussion. You can find us on Instagram at The Thing About Austin and on Twitter at Austin underscore things. You can also check out our website, thethingaboutaustin.com, and email us at thethingaboutaustin at gmail.com. We will be taking a break for a week, but when we return, we will be talking about Robert Farah's toothpick case. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.